Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. Another historic milestone in the emergence of public banks around the country has been reached in Philadelphia with an overwhelming vote by the city council to establish a municipal public financial authority. Hello, and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute. On today's program, we're going to be talking with two of the prime movers in the Philadelphia success, Vanessa Lowe and Connie Belay, who will tell us about what this new municipal institution is meant to accomplish and how they pulled it off as a citizen action. It's an encouraging and creative tale about citizens using their democratic power to support a multi-year effort to create a public bank in one of America's greatest cities. Later on in the program, Ellen will be talking with author Michael Mechanic, whose new book called Jackpot, How the Super-Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. So let's get started with our discussion on Philadelphia's breakthrough success at creating a public bank for the city of Philadelphia. Today, in this part of the program, we're going to talk about a recent victory for people who love public banking, and that's us, of course, in Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia, as you may know, was the place in which the Quakers started the first public bank in America about two, three, 200 years ago. Actually, what it's, it's 300 years ago, almost. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was the public bank, the Quaker bank model in Philadelphia that, that created an enormously uh, potent economic viability and sustainability and investment, people moving the money around for common purpose, common good. And of course, that helped to build the American colonies until Ben Franklin spilled the beans to King George uh, and said, hey, we got our own money over here. And King George said, hey, no, no, you don't. It's, that's off the table now. So uh, that's kind of a, a very brief and somewhat sarcastic uh, history of public banking uh, in, in America. But Philadelphia passed by a vote of 15 to 1, the, the approval of creating a Philadelphia Public Financing Authority, which is a forerunner to actually creating a public bank. We're very excited about that because Philadelphia... Uh, is uh, the poorest major city in America. Even though it's got fabulous wealth, it has uh, chronic uh, poverty uh, as part of it. And a couple of the people I'll introduce you to right now have been very principal, very centrally involved in making this happen, creating the Philadelphia Public Bank Initiative. One is Vanessa Lowe. Vanessa, chairman of the Economic Development Group of the uh, Philadelphia Public Banking Coalition, 
and if I have this right, Vanessa, it's you're also the co-founder of the Power Organization. I'm, I'm the co-chair of the Economic Dignity Team for Power, which is Pennsylvania's organizing to witness, empower, and rebuild. We're a community organizing network that operates through faith-based institutions. And um, my role in this, I, I sort of came in late. I did go to that 2014 uh, banking conference, but um, I got brought back into this process um, to be the moderator slash host of, um, of Financing Philadelphia's Future, which was a, uh, essentially a show that we started to keep the conversation going. Helping that uh, also is Connie Belay. Uh, Connie was actually the co-founder of the Philadelphia Public Bank Coalition going back uh, about six or seven years, uh, and also uh, as on the steering committee of Neighborhood Networks, yet another community group uh, that uh, helped to pull together a, a very street-level grassroots uh, demand to create a public bank. So uh, let's talk about why Philadelphia chose this route, and uh, what is it that makes you excited about the prospect of having a, a bank? Vanessa, let's hear your take on how banking is situated in Philadelphia and what the needs are. Yeah, so it's interesting because I actually, my professional life, I spent 21 years in federal service working on access to capital for underserved communities. Um, so that included about seven years with the CDFI fund, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, which certifies and invests in financial institutions to serve the underserved. And in fact, Philadelphia is quite the, um, what we'll call it a hotbed for CDFIs. Um, and at the same time, the fact is that even CDFIs um, are not going as deeply into the community as they can. Um, and particularly with black and brown entrepreneurs, there are, there are many systemic um, and essentially kind of how our economy is set up ways that the economy was structured to exclude us, to exclude mm -hmm. Americans um, and other people of color. So I am excited and Derek Green is certainly excited and often talks about how one of the main reasons we need our own public bank is so that we can partner with those CDFIs and other institutions that are dedicated to serving the underserved so they can go even deeper into the community and deeper into addressing the barriers um, that certain people face in getting access to credit. Derek Green is the champion council member who really has been driving this bill for this ordinance forward. Uh, Ellen? Could you elaborate on what barriers to getting credit, small and medium size, or particularly? Yeah. So, and it's interesting because he, he likes to talk about, and I'm, I don't want to speak for him, but I know that he came from the banking sector. And the major thing that happened with the banking sector was essentially credit scoring, right? So it took this relationships that people would have with their banks, particularly entrepreneurs, you know, like sort of think back to Main Street, right? They'd go to the banker and they knew the banker, the banker knew them. But then when, when essentially using a digitized system of making a decision without any real conversation with that person who's asking for the loan, um, most of the banks lost that relationship and connection to the community. So that was a big piece. But, you know, even aside from that, it's always been hard for Black folks to get access to capital, right? Just after, you know, slavery was abolished, a bank was set up, right? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know the whole story there, but I know enough um, from the little bit of, you know, sort of training I've had that a bank was set up for the African-American community and they started saving in that bank because, you know, they were farmers, they were, they were, they 
they were also craftspeople, right? They could shoe horses and things. They had skills because, you know, those, those skills were being given away um, to the slave owners. And, um, but they then essentially the government, you know, sort of stole that bank and, and, you know, the white folks stole that bank. So, so ongoing and systemic racism and government policies that support lacking access to capital um, are some of the things that still exist. That's pretty um, with the GI Bill and right. you know all of that money that was given to the soldiers who came on, home. But the fact is, and it, it wasn't necessarily written in the legislation. Now that I, you know, as I recently learned that it it couldn't go to African Americans, but because of the systems of how you know real estate worked and the developers and the bias already existed in home ownership, black folks were not getting access to those loans, and so that's what you know essentially created redlining yeah. and. As we're being reminded every day now um, with what's going on, home, home ownership is such a, it's an amazing source of wealth in this country. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's being lost at an astronomical rate um, for African-Americans. So I'll leave it there. Just uh, addressing the, uh, the very critical thing which you talked about, the change from evaluating people and their credit worthiness by their role and their character in the community. We went to this digitized system, which advantages people who already have assets. Mm. So it's shifted immediately to people who already own homes, already own slaves, already owned all of the things that create wealth. Mm. And that just accelerated. And that is something that is much more recent um, because I think all the bankers like Derek lived through that switch from community-based banks to this kind of impersonal credit system. And um, I was having a home inspection done myself. And so I can tell you now it's all about this paperwork stuff. Uh -huh. Nobody met me personally or wants to know anything about me. And, and I have like, you know, going to different creditors, I have a bone to pick with one of them because of the way they dealt with, uh, uh -huh. you know, some credit things. So it, it's, yeah. a, it's a different world. And it's disadvantaged people of color and people without means already. A disempowering financial system uh, in, in many cases. Describe to us what the strategy is on the, the Philadelphia Public Financing Authority and why you're talking about an authority instead of a bank. One of the roadblocks that we recognized in the coalition very early on was the important thing in getting a bank established is legal. So what is the legal framework under which we can establish one in the state of Pennsylvania? And we wanted, um, you know, first as a state level, but then we were looking at municipal. Can, under our home rule charter, can we establish a bank? But there was this little provision in the state law that said that only the state can call something a bank, a depository bank. And because of that, it was a little bit of a stymie. No one knew if we could quite, people wrote white papers. But then for years of chatting it up and going around and connecting with um, some high-powered banking experts, one came forward and kind of volunteered and said, we think there's a way around this. So we put them into contact, basically. So, well, hey, the city needs legal expertise. And basically, the legal advisors came up with a strategy that you can form an authority 
and the authority can actually form a bank. Um, the capitalization would not be the same as say in North Dakota, where it's using the full faith and credit, like all the deposits of, of the government entity. Instead, the capitalization can be gathered different ways, maybe partly from the government. Mm -hmm. So there, that's the next step is the capitalization, but it can be done and it can belong to the city. So that was, I would say from legally, the critical breakthrough for the authority and the reason why there's an authority and not a bank initially. And it's it's a step that's being taken elsewhere around the country to have this interim organizational facility to use the time that it takes to get a, a bank charter to, and to navigate that territory, which is regulatory hurdles, as financial hurdles, uh, staffing challenges, and so forth. All of that takes a lot of time. And of course, as our politics goes through ele election cycles, the champions that we rely on to bring these policy changes forward can lose their jobs, in which case the project itself can stop. So uh, these are really very uh, creative. And I think Philadelphia has done a really one of the most uh, creative solutions to get this thing going uh, that way. So what is the status of it right now? What's happening next with the Philadelphia effort? Well, the next step will be the um, capitalization. Um, the annual budget for the city, uh, we're on a fiscal year that starts July 1st. So beginning um, in a couple of weeks, the, the mayor will be presenting his budget to city council. And then there's a debate back and forth in public hearings about the budget. Um, and of course, the coalition and our allies will be pushing for the budget to include some monies as seed money for the public bank. It uh, probably won't be all the money. There can be other venues such as issuing bonds. But I think that's the next step. It's going to be how much, how much could we get from city to start it? I think that's the next challenge. What do you think, Vanessa? The other thing in the, um, we're going to start this pretty soon is really working on finding the leaders of the bank. Legislation yeah. calls for two different bodies. Um, the first is a nine-member board of directors, and that it, those folks are named by the mayor. But that board, like the next uh, group I'll talk about, they have to be nominated by community yeah. organizations within the city of Philadelphia. So it's really important in, in any public banking is the idea is we want the citizens of the city to really be have a voice in this. So that's one of the uh, most important yeah. things I think we're going through now is identifying who the leaders are. So those nine, member, uh, those nine members of the board of directors appointed by the mayor, then they appoint a nine member policy board. And it is the policy board who will finalize what are the product offerings? You know, are we going to do, um, you know, who are we going to partner with? Because while they may be, you know, some people are saying, oh, so we're going to do direct loans. We're not necessarily going to do direct loans to entrepreneurs, because, again, we have a wide and vast network of dedicated lenders who are really committed to that. But we may find ways of providing them with um, letters of credit and other ways for them to go deeper and better into the community to serve folks who are not already being served. Um, so that policy board will decide on what they'll do. I always like to raise at this point the issue of uh, the North Dakota Bank, that they have a student loan program. You know, that I would love us to see, to see us do that at some point, not anywhere near because we've got so many hurdles to get through. But, you know, we can be so imaginative now about how we can use our own money as opposed to sending it to Wall Street. 
And that's the other thing I wanted to bring up is I am so excited about our eventual opportunity to not have to send our money outside of our city to Wall Street, have it, you know, operating in predatory and ways that are really contrary to, yeah. um, you know, what happens in Philadelphia and what should happen in Philadelphia in order for us to be a thriving city. Yeah, that's a theme that is uh, employed or uh, uh, drawn on by the people in, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and elsewhere around the country, where the global banks that accept the deposits from the, the tax money that people pay, uh, put that into things that people don't really want, private prisons, payday lenders, uh, fossil fuels, I mean, a whole list of, 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 uh, of actions and investments that, uh, that Wall Street, you know, uh, makes its uh, big, big money on. Um, you know, when this project in Philadelphia started um, about 10 years ago, Mike Krause, who was uh, at the time uh, just uh, one of the founding members of, of Public Banking Institute, as Ellen will, uh, can tell us, yeah. Um, uh, put this forward. And when he was talking, we would go around and visit a variety of people and sources in Philadelphia, and he would address the question of corruption. Because people would say, you know, especially in Philadelphia, but Philadelphia, you could say it's Chicago, you could say any, uh, any, any city USA, he would like to say, uh, people would be in disbelief. What? You're going to give the politicians a bank? What are you, crazy? You know, that's sort of a, a and, and, and so how is that going to be addressed? How, how is the Philadelphia public financing? Go ahead, Connie. Well, for one thing, there, there was a very um, uh, kind of um, heated argument aimed at <laughs> opposing the bank on that very basis just the day before the legislation was introduced. <laughs> and um, we replied in a rather heated way saying, Oh, so we're more corrupt than, say, <laughs> Wells Fargo, who, Jeez. you know, actually was fraudulent or that in, you know, created the whole collapse of the economy in 2009, you know, along with their fellow other banks in Wall Street um, by uh, kind of seducing the city into credit default swaps. Yeah. that they knew that they were advantaged by. I said, oh, so you, you would trust them more than, you know, I than don't your think. elected politicians that <laughs> democratically elected. Politicians elected yeah. We can fire, you know, we, we have the control over, uh, over who we hire and fire as, as a mayor. And uh, we don't like their choices. We, th th hey, that, there's the neighborhood network side of it. That's what neighborhood networks works on. Uh -huh. um, so that's one of the main arguments. But the other argument that speaks to people and was very effective um, in talking to community groups, which we did go around and we talked to small groups all over the city and many um, op-eds were written by members of our, of our coalition. And we talked about, well, what's our, the, our experience? with banks in the last, say, 20, 30 years. There used to be something called the Germantown Savings of Bank, which had been around for you know, hundreds of years. Right. And then suddenly it started changing its name. And within a few years, it became Core States, and then it became Wachovia, and then it became First Something or Other, and then Union. it became, and now it's Wells Fargo. Yeah, And at the same time, down the block, the payday lender uh, and the check cashing places opened up 
because people didn't have, couldn't afford bank accounts anymore because of the fees and the difficulty. So that meant something to people because it was their lived experience. So that was one way we also carried that message to people. Um, I wanted to ask Vanessa, you you said that all the CDFIs you have, um, but apparently they, they want to work with a, a, a public bank or what, what is it that they need that the public bank can do for them? Well, um, the, so it's interesting during one of our finance in Philadelphia shows, we had um, the executive director, Jim Burnett, who's actually an, an old mentor of mine um, who runs a CDFI out in West Philadelphia. And the now CDFIs have been around for more than 25. I think we're getting to 30 years. So in the beginning, they were seen as very much like, who would, what do you mean you're going to lend to people who are poor or, you know, lend to people who can't get access to credit from other banks? Because there's a reason for that, right? So there was lots of suspicion and just sort of feeling like this is never going to work. Well, now it's survived for 30 years and they got an allocation of $3 billion under the Recovery Act. Why? Because they were the institutions that were successful at getting those PPP, remember the payroll protection program loans, just as COVID was hitting into the hands of the small entrepreneurs, which is who it was supposed to go to. It wasn't supposed to go to Shake Shack. So all over the country, there were headlines about how these CDFIs were just doing a great job at truly getting that money to where it was needed to save small businesses, not the big ones. Um, so, um, So anyway, that is long established, right? And so the the ones that need funds are the ones that are very small because despite the fact that the government said, here, this industry now gets $3 billion, the small ones, the way that money gets allocated is based on their amount of lending recently, so the prior year. So what he said during our show, this executive director of the CDFI said, there's just so much they would give me because we were already a small lender. So like we were just talking about, it's like, okay, you're defining this in a way that is already limiting, right? right. right. So that's definitely one of the big issues, particularly with Black-led CDFIs, because they tend to be the smallest. Again, it's sort of a circular thing of, you know, the more you limit us, the more our institutions are limited and the more our growth is limited. So that's one of the big things. So CDFI, for those of you, you know, we, we said it before, but it's Community Development Financial Institution. And they're not banks, but they are managers and distributors of credit, as Vanessa said. But but they don't actually, but they aren't really banks in the sense that they don't leverage their capital in the same way. Go ahead, Vanessa. So just to clarify, and it's a, it's a really good question. It's an interesting distinction. So the the let me go to the CDFI fund. That's the that's the sort of biggest provider of funding for CDFIs. A federal level. Division of U.S. Treasury. So it's a it's a division of the federal government. Treasury Department. Yeah. Um, I worked there for about seven years. So the predominance of the about 1,100 institutions that have been certified as CDFIs that they need to pass all this criteria. Are you a lending institution? The biggest thing is, are you dedicated to serving the underserved? Um, so there's about 1,100 institutions now. And the predominance of those institutions are what we call loan funds. Those are non-depository, non-regulated institutions. And a lot of them are like focused on affordable housing development, for example, right? So they're not banks, but there can be, so the next biggest tranche 
um, is credit unions actually. So they do, they are depositories. They are insured by the federal government. Um, And then very small number of traditional banks, B-A-N-K-S, actually are certified as CDFIs, but that's one of the smallest groups. Um, so the, the, the mass, the, most of them are non-regulated, non-depository loan funds. And that's why that infusion of capital is so important because it's not like they take deposits. You know, a traditional bank and the credit unions, they lend based on their deposits. But these non-regulated, non-depository institutions, they've depended on essentially the, the, the first folks who were lending to them, it was the nuns. The sisters, oh, yeah. <laughs> they were putting their retirement funds on the line because wow. they were dedicated to the mission. Wow. You know? wow, that's interesting. That's how it was in Europe, going way back. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's always the faith-based Faith-based folks move first, right? That's, there you go. And I was going to say that the black and brown community is uh, in Philadelphia. The, the dominant uh, financial institution is our credit unions in churches. And there are yes. quite, quite a number of those. There are, and they're very small. Very small. Very <laughs> and so small. very often what they end up being is sort of savings clubs. Yeah. Because now, you know, I mean, that's the credit unions. They are a, a regulated institutions and they're sort of subject to, you yeah. know, the rules, the, essentially the rules and regulations of any other, um, uh, you know, banking type institution. So a lot of them that are still surviving, essentially it's a small membership and so they're sort of, they're managing the church's funds and things like that. Um, the ones that are surviving for the long term, a lot of those have merged into, say, some of the largest, you know, uh, credit unions, Philadelphia mm-hmm. Federal Fire, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so they may not have uh, necess- necessarily a branch in the church any longer. But that, I'm glad you brought that up, Walt, because that's the thing. Black folks have always had to find another way to finance their things, right? Because yeah, yeah bank after we you know came out of slavery um didn't work and so you know whether it's what do they call them susu clubs okay well we'll all save our funds together and start sharing then that turned into you know credit unions and other ways so yeah we we've always sort of had to kind of bootstrap and do it among ourselves and we've done it um and so now it's really time to look at what in the traditional economy was set up purposefully to exclude us and fix it. Yeah, very, very interesting and timely because democracy is, of course, very much front and center on the headlines of the world, uh, certainly you know, domestically and internationally. And as we'd like to say in the public banking world, uh, that we are democratizing our money, you know, getting it, bringing it back into the, the hands of the people. And here, I think we've seen this beautiful example of the people standing together to do that very thing. To, you know, to reclaim control of their money and to put it where it matters to them, which is into the community. Yeah, and I, I think I just wanted, this is, I, and I really want that to be the, the carrying cry almost because part of that system that was set up on purpose was pretending like there were these special people who needed these very fancy degrees because they know uh-huh. more about how the money should be managed. So therefore we need to send it to this place called Wall Street where, you know, these predominantly behind computers and they know how to make it work. Well, we know how they made it work, right? You know, 2007, 2008, essentially by creating, you know, these fake products, putting so many people at risk, you know, mm-hmm. and what I like to bring up is an interest only loan. 
to get a mortgage where essentially you're never paying down the balance. Right. So you're actually saying to these people who you perceive, and sometimes they were, you know, sort of challenged with credit. Um, okay, so essentially you're going to carry this debt for the rest of your life and you're going to pass it on to their kid. And they did not care. That mm -hmm. is just predatory. That is evil. And that's what we need to stop. So yeah. pretending like, you know, by sending it to these special people who sit up on Wall Street, that somehow that's protecting our money? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, this has been very nice. Really good to have a, a, a briefing from you folks about uh, what's going on in Philly. Uh, Connie, is there anything you would like to add before we have to move on? Um, I guess what is most unique and that we're particularly proud of is what Vanessa mentioned earlier, um, which is that you know the boards of the uh, of the bank will be made up of community organization. Yeah. Uh, people involved, heavily involved in the in community organizations, and they have, and they will be from environmental groups, public health, public education, cooperatives, um, small business development people, gender justice people, public transportation. It, it is spelled out where this um, tremendous civic resource of civic devotion let's put yeah, it that way, beautiful. will be involved in the bank. It, it, so it's not just, uh, we just want, you know, smart banker types who know how to turn a buck. No, we want people who know how to develop a community. And they, That's great. they're not developing it for their bonuses. They're developing yeah. it for their community. That's uh, well that's, said. <laughs> yeah, well said. And, and I think we'll have to leave it there. But I want to thank you so much for sharing that. We're, of course, going to be following this historic development and the historic steps that you take next in Philadelphia to lead the country again toward uh, a new democratic prospect for public interest and protection of our communities and each other. Connie Belay, Vanessa Lowe, Ellen Brown, thank you very much for this conversation. Take thank care. you all. It was a pleasure. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Michael Mechanic, a longtime senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine and former managing editor of the East Bay Express, which is based in Oakland, California. He is the author of Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. He has also written many articles and has won numerous awards as a journalist. Uh, his website is readjackpot.com. So, Michael, it's great, great to be speaking with you. Great to be here. So you're, you're an excellent writer and you tell a very good tale. And uh, it's sort of, you know, comforting to all the rest of us to hear that it's being rich and being among the uber rich is not what everything is cracked up to be. Uh, you call it money is a blessing and a curse, a cage with gilded gilded bars. So um, I wonder if first you could just kind of give us a little summary of your book and what your what prompted you to write it and sort of what what message you you want to get across. Well, my story is really kind of an exploration of the American wealth fantasy and to sort of distinguish the fantasy of wealth from the reality of wealth. Like, what is what's it really like to be really really rich? But not only that, um, I was interested in sort of how our attitudes towards wealth and our and our sort of hoarding instincts have 
contributed to the problems that we face in our society, uh, especially in sort of the stretching apart of the ladders of opportunity, such that, you know, it's very hard to move up and down or to, to, to move up. And this is sort of our national aspiration is sort of to kind of move up the ladder. We have this sort of idea of social mobility in this country, and it's sort of part of our ethos that we can um, work hard and apply ourselves and get to some more secure place. But very often we, what we're doing is we're sort of fetishizing the, these rags to riches stories, which are in fact very rare. Um, and we have what's called, research is called mobility optimism. Uh, it is actually unfounded, <laughs> but we tell ourselves these stories and it allows us to sort of tolerate what really is mind blowing inequality of wealth in this country. I think what you said about this tendency to hoard or, I mean, you never feel secure, really, no right. matter how rich you are. You might have a, a live in a mansion, but you've got a mortgage on your mansion. And so you don't know for sure. I, I saw an article of people that didn't have $500 to spare in an emergency. I'm sure you've seen. And, you have, but some right. of them were actually rich and didn't have 500 because their commitments were bigger than their actual assets. So well, I you know, the real estate people, they're always major debt. <laughs> That's how they run. Everything <laughs> right. is leveraged. But, you know, those guys, you, you know, you, you own a bunch of buildings and then you borrow against those. And, you know, basically these guys don't pay income tax because they um, take out loans against their properties and that's their income. And sometimes they can take basically a, a tax break on their income rather than paying taxes on it. Kind of astounding. First, I wonder if you could just tell us some of your favorite stories or of uh, why it's not everything it's cracked up to be to be wealthy. Well, we think that wealth is going to kind of solve all our problems. And at a base level, you know, if you, if you are poor, if you can't make ends meet, if you're in debt, if you're struggling, you know, paycheck to paycheck, of course, having more money is going to help you and <clears throat> make you happier. Um, but there's a sort of very low, surprisingly low limit to that. Like researchers have done surveys with millions and millions of people across countries, and they find that the level of income where people are sort of satisfied with their lives, it sort of peaks between like 65 and $100,000 a year in earnings. And after that, they call it the satiation point. And after that, your sort of self-reported happiness doesn't increase. In fact, it often decreases because in order to maintain that lifestyle, you're working much harder. You're spending a lot more time. You're spending a lot more mental energy on your investments. And where does this go? What is that? You know, managing properties and all this stuff. And it, it ends up being kind of an albatross on your shoulder. Like the money's whispering to you all day long. You know, I, I actually recently read in the Washington Post uh, a profile of Leon Cooperman, the hedge funder. It's worth billions of dollars. And he's, you know, I think he's in his 80s now. He didn't understand why people don't like rich people. Um, you know, the, these guys, I'll say, it's not the player, it's the game, right? Um, the game is bad. Uh, the players are, you know, everyone considers themselves, likes to consider themselves a good, a good person, right? You know, people that we think of as the villainous rich, they don't think they're villainous. They rationalize their, their behavior. And they say, you know, I'm not doing anything illegal. <laughs> um, and it, it does make me think of one story you told of a, 
of a man who um oh Zalkovitsky, yeah yeah who gave away everything and still wasn't you know it's almost like you have this guilt <laughs> or some people some rich people need to assuage their their reputations by giving it away and mm -hmm. so he had given away his money and he still wasn't really satisfied so he gave away a kidney which to a stranger <laughs> i mean you stranger can many people do or not many but people do give kidneys to a relative or somebody you know a loved one and you can certainly understand that if they're you know your loved one's gonna die but to give it to a stranger it's a it's a hard thing to grasp. People thought he was crazy, you know, and he said, I wasn't crazy. I mean, that, he said, I've never been happier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he almost sort of became addicted to giving away his money. He sort of started doing it and then wanted to do more of it. Um, he's an odd case, though. Uh, most people of his level of wealth give away just a tiny fraction of their money and use that to sort of assuage their their feelings of guilt if they have feelings of guilt or to you know in some cases build their reputation furnish their reputations or you know and often the philanthropic giving is tied up with you know tax planning and um you think about people with foundations and donor advised funds well these foundations they're almost unregulated and the law only requires that a, a foundation a charitable foundation give away 5% of its assets each year. And that can include the overhead of the company. So if you take the board of directors on a junket to, to Ibiza and some resort and have a board meeting there for two weeks, <laughs> that's just, that all comes out of the 5% that you're supposed to be giving away. Um, and meanwhile, you know, this 5% payout, well, the stock market could be going up 20% that year and you're pulling in far more money than you're giving out. And, and yet there's no requirement that you shell out this money. And this is money that people have already taken a tax deduction on. So essentially the, the taxpayers are subsidizing these foundations kind of in a big way. The more money they have sitting around, the more they're being subsidized by taxpayers. Uh, it's even worse for the, what's called the donor advised funds where a billionaire can just sort of park a huge amount of money. And these funds, they're meant to be for charitable use, but there's no payout requirement whatsoever. So they can just sort of put that money aside and let it sit there. And the problem with that is, again, that depending on their tax rate, the public is subsidizing that money. It's basically public expenditure sitting locked up and it's sitting locked up and it's going to be used for whatever that billionaire wants to do with it. And that may or may not be in the public interest. So, I mean, you know, philanthropy has a real role to play in filling gaps that the government can't or won't fill, but it's no, you know, it's no replacement for government. And I've talked to wealthy people. This is a common argument. They say, well, you know, the government is a lousy charity, like they're inefficient, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's not the role of government. The government isn't to be a charity. The, the role of government is to, you know, keep things running smoothly and um, have a law, laws that benefit all of us and help people who really need help and lift them up. You know, the, the government has a role and, uh, you know, there's a very anti-government streak running through the ultra-wealthy crowd in this country, actually all over the world. You know, they think the government is, a, you know, a game to be played and it, it, they do game it in a big way well i think that is the major problem with our political system is that both political parties 
in order to get an office and stay in office, you have to get money, attract big money. And uh, I don't know how we fix that. I mean, we do have the sense, the sense that the justification for capitalism is that it's a level playing field and every, it's a land of equal opportunity. It's some, something we, <laughs> we pride ourselves in being, but we, it's obviously not. I mean, clearly the opportunities aren't equal. You, many people work very hard all their lives and barely, barely make ends meet. So either you have to, like you say, hit the jackpot meaning you inherit it or whatever, you win the lottery or something like that, or just get a lucky break, even if you make it on your own and you you still probably need a lucky break here or there, or people do get lucky breaks, so you hear. Yeah, so we, you know, we tend to play, it's sort of human nature to play down the luck and play up our role in the achievement. I mean, in one, there's one chapter in the book where I sit down with a uh, psychology researcher named Paul Piff, who studies the psychology of wealth and how our behavior and values uh, are correlated with our relative wealth. And uh, he did a, a, a famous experiment in which he set up rigged games of, of the game Monopoly. And so one player would have twice as much money and roll the dice, um, you know, pass go more often because they roll the dice, two dice instead of one and get twice as much money when they pass go. So there's sort of an alternative set of rules he made. Um, and then there would be a coin toss and these volunteers who had come to do the experiment, one person would be the rich player and one would be the poor player. And they would play for 15 minutes and they would stop the game and um, talk to them. And so what happened is the rich players started acting more aggressive, making sort of snarky comments to the other person, actually physically expanding themselves so they took up more space. I mean, there, there were just these interesting little behavioral effects. The, the thing that the most interested Piff is that when they sort of debrief them afterwards, the rich players would justify their, by talking about their strategy and you know, their smart strategy in the game, as opposed to saying, oh yeah, it was, it was rigged the whole time, right? I flipped the coin. <laughs> I was just lucky. <laughs> I got the I got the good side, right? They they really played that down. They played up their role in the win. I mean, and that's just something that we do. Um, we think of ourselves as, as deserving of our success, and as a corollary, we see people who are unsuccessful as undeserving. That's why you know people are derided as being lazy and you know unmotivated. And if you look at polling, it's st we still have these attitudes. They didn't succeed because they didn't work hard enough. But that's, you know, as one wealthy source told me, he said, you know, work is necessary. Hard work is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You need hard work. You need luck. You timing, people supporting you. But then there are people who make a lot of money and they think they did it all on their own. And, you know, you get a lot of, you have this big libertarian streak in, in Silicon Valley, for instance, people say, we don't want it. You can't come and regulate. We, we built this. And it's like, well, actually, the government built the internet. Mm -hmm. The government built the roads that you, you drive to work on. I mean, it sort of blows me away. People forget how much they owe the commons. Yeah, that's where we're coming from, too. And it seems to me we do need a, a social safety net of some sort. I mean, at least basic security. Everybody wants security, no matter how rich you are, 
you could feel insecure in our current civilization. And even just economically, we can't compete with other countries that do give a safety net for, you know, they give medical, free medical or free free education all the way through college, um, subsidized transportation, that sort of thing. And so our employers have to pay enough wages to cover all those things. And so we can't compete with the Chinese or whatever. So we do, we do need some sort of safety net. But beyond that... Well, you know, the thing is, we do have a safety net, at least for the rich people, right? When businesses, industries are failing, the government comes in and bails yeah, them out. Yeah. Actually, during the pandemic, those first couple of relief bills, there were measures stuck into those bills that benefited only one percenters. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to help major companies and their shareholders. And, you know, also partners in, you know, things like hedge funds and venture capital firms. And, and actually, when you look at the tax code, everything is set up to benefit people who own businesses and people who are sitting on piles of capital investors. You know, it's astounding to me that we spend so much to support capital gains over labor. I mean, that, that is a cost to our society. That means if you have a big, you're an investor with a big pot of money pre-existing, maybe you inherited it, maybe you made it, and you invest that money in the markets, you pay a much lower tax rate when you sell those investments than if you had just been working hard and getting a paycheck. I mean, substantially it's 20% the maximum capital gains tax versus 37% is the maximum um, labor income tax. So, you know, a lot of the proposals that have come up have been ways to equalize that to, actually Joe Biden wanted to raise the capital gains tax rate up to the, the labor tax rate, which um, is, is absolutely, you know, should be done. If anything, it should be the other way around. Should, you know, we should tax work less than we tax investment. And, and people say, well, well, but wait, you know, People will not have any incentive, incentive to invest if you do that. I said, nonsense. What are you going to do? You take your cash and shove it under your mattress? People will still build companies and they will still invest. Plus, if you're investing in the stock market, your money is not going to the company. It goes to the person that sold you the, sold you the stock. The only money that goes to the company is in the, in the initial public offering. And, and, you know, one thing that really blows me away is sort of the, the estate tax and all the ways around it. Um, I mean, we, we, we created, actually I talked to Gabrielle Zuckman, the Berkeley economist about this. And uh, I, I asked him because John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were having this long debate by mail about aristocracy and whether Jefferson thought aristocracy would eventually fade away in America because there was so much land available and we didn't have the old British laws of inheritance. And John Adams said, no way. Like in every society, the money's gonna roll up like a snowball and accumulate in families and you're gonna create this aristocracy. And I asked Zuckman what he thought about that. He said, well, what we have now is almost worse than a hereditary aristocracy. We have an economic aristocracy that in which you can make these dynasties seem merit, you know, meritocratic, like they deserve it. And yet, most, for the most part, they're just working the system so that the money keeps passing on to their offspring who haven't done anything to deserve it. They haven't built anything. 
And they can afford the lawyers that know how to work the system. They don't even know how have to know how to do it themselves. They can absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, these big these big families have what's called a family office, and the family offices are just sort of these conglomerate. It's actually an LLC they create just to manage their own finances, and they hire lawyers, they hire uh, estate planners, they hire accountants, they hire, you know aircraft experts and i mean it depends on the family depends on what their needs are but um they kind of plan everything and the patriarch everything in these families revolves around this patriarch i mean you talk about sort of the the woes of being in this world one of them is if you're in this kind of family you're really tethered to this wealth creator in in weird ways and, and there's a lot of pressure on you to do something special, right? I have a, a chapter where I talk to a psychologist who studies sort of the effects of growing up wealthy on children. And in fact, the wealthiest children are as just as much at risk for like substance abuse, antisocial behaviors, low level criminal patterns than the very poorest because they are pretty easy to get, you have discretionary cash and have access to you know, drugs and alcohol. They're also self-medicating. That's what they say. That's what the kids say. We're self-medicating because of all the pressures being put on us by our families and our teachers and so forth. There's a lot of like addiction problems and a lot of despair and anxiety and depression in this crowd that we don't hear about because people don't like to talk about it. But it's really, it's there. It's a pathology of wealth. You can see where it's isolating, for example. You can see where everybody wants something. And so that kind of inhibits normal friendships and normal community or, or those things that, <laughs> you know, part, as part of this book, I, you know, I reached out to as many wealthy people as who would talk to me. Uh, my cutoff tended to be $30 million and up. because I was, So th those are the kind of families I was trying to talk to. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to a, a woman named Tracy Gary, who grew up in the sixties in, in a telecom family with the equivalent of, equivalent of probably, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And they, they had a yellow Rolls Royce and an airplane helicopter. They had seven estates, each staff, each with their own household staff. And um, she essentially was raised by, you know, raised by nannies and caregivers and so forth. Her parents were gone half the year, traipsing around to social events and charity functions. And, you know, there was, she was a miserable, miserable child. She said she didn't even speak until she was four or something like that. And she was being raised by, you know, nannies with a third grade education um, who would take her out in their communities. So and she sort of saw how the rest of the world was. Meanwhile, she's being chauffeured to a private school in a Rolls Royce. And she, she was just absolutely unhappy. And it wasn't until when she was 14, her parents sat her down and said, we're going to give you a million dollars. This is 1965, when a million dollars was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And they said, we're giving you a million dollars, you and your brother each get a million dollars and it'll, it'll accumulate until you're 21 and then you have access to it. And we want you to do something with it by the time you're 35. What she did is after getting out of college, she started getting involved in sort of building women's foundations so far. She ended up giving it all away. And now she has sort of become a crusader for doing just the same. She said, I've never been happier getting rid of all that. 
Mm -hmm. She found a community in her ability to give, give away all that money. And so now, you know, she advises families and so forth on philanthropy and things like that. But, you know, she says she, now she makes like 140 grand a year. She gives 40 of it away. So, you know, she's, she's still giving away a big chunk of her earnings. She keeps enough to live a decent life, but she doesn't, she said, I've burned my, my safety nets. She has nothing now, you know, apart from what she's making. Yeah. But she's very happy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to say like the the whole notion of my book was not to wag my finger at the rich, right? There's lots of books about inequality that are just sort of tirades. But I wanted to sort of have people think about how we can be better sort of as a society. And this would involve, you know, not a revolution, not a bloody revolution, but a revolution of the mind, you know, a revolution where the rich pitch in uh, and do their part and be willing to not play that game so much, to give up some of their privilege to, to like you said, level the playing field because it, it, it desperately needs it. I mean, even Biden in his speech the other day, he said, you remember he said right in the beginning, he said, you know, hey, you know, you guys know this isn't fair. This system isn't fair. And he wasn't talking, he was talking to the wealthy people when he said that. You guys know that, right? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, I think for regular readers reading your book, it's, um, you know, it, it's interesting to see that they too have problems. They have problems just like we, we do. But the, the more important, I think, is reaching the, the rich, like you say, to to get across this point that you're not really going to be satisfied just accumulating that you really need to help people in some way. Well, there's a CEO actually who contacted me after reading my book and he, he wanted me to come to, to lunch with him to show me something. And I said, sure. Um, so I went and he had this spreadsheet. He was showing me how um, I had a section in the book where I talk about the equity shares in in a company, the ownership of a company is often skewed like absurdly towards the small group of owners. And it just, you know, is logarithmically reduced as you go down the totem pole. And, you know, so that such such the owners are worth, you know, 100,000 times what the, they have the 100,000 times the ownership of like the workers. And he said, I didn't think that was fair. So uh, he created this system where every time the, their firm, which has been doing really well, hits a new benchmark, a greater proportion of the profits go to the workers. So he was influenced to, you know, he didn't have to do this, but he, he read the book and he said, this is something I can do to kind of make my people whole. Um, so that was encouraging. I got right. to somebody. <laughs> And as, as you pointed out, just giving away money if you're rich not really doesn't really cut it. You need to actually sacrifice yourself in some way. Okay, you've got to sacrifice something because, you know, you think about the giving pledge, you know, $50 billion. The giving pledge says, I will give away half plus one penny of my money in my lifetime. Well, actually in life and death. And if you have that kind of money, giving away half your money makes no difference in your life. When you, <laughs> I mean, except for a scorecard, perhaps. 
I mean, that's what I often wonder. So what is a guy like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk? Why, why would they keep trying to make more money? Why would they care about that? Why would they go out and lobby against increased taxes on the wealthy? It makes no sense. I mean, they, they, they cannot spend their fortunes if they spend, you know, it would take their, the rest of their lives to spend their fortunes if they even could. Um, so why do they do it? Well, they do it because it's ego. You know, it's a scorecard. It's a record keeping. Oh, I'm, I'm the richest this week. Mm-hmm. You know, I have the biggest yacht. Um, yeah. Really becomes a control. A it's a control mechanism. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we've run over our time already. <laughs> it's been great talking to you. Is there, is there more you'd like to wrap up with? Um, I hope people are entertained and infuriated and motivated when they read my book. I think they'll be all three. I mean, I think it's a it's a fun read and an informative one. And I'll confirm that it's a twice. fun read. <laughs> I didn't want to write a you know a book that was going to be a downer to read. So yeah, okay. Well, that's great, and it's great talking to you. You too. I've been speaking with Michael Mechanic, who is the author of Jackpot: How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. Website is readjackpot.com, where his book can be found, among other places. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Money!